Good morning. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about being Gracie's first sermon. Um, that's uh, daunting. So while I was preparing uh, to speak this week, uh, I was uh, really was thinking of a couple of different specific things that I, I could potentially talk about. Um, one of which was um, what exactly is heresy and why does it matter? Uh, and the other of which was trying to understand uh, what the kingship of God means um, within our modern era and way of thinking. Um, and I realized that uh, they actually kind of are related. I also realized that they're way too big for me to tackle in a morning. Um, and then, uh, thirdly, I realized that um, apparently every time I get up here, I'm basically just going to challenge philosophical presuppositions in our culture. Um, that apparently is what happens when I stand behind the pulpit. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, um, you know, I want to start out with the notion that, you know, actually what I do want to talk about today is, in fact, God's kingship. But... Um, in direct relation to that is our response to it and our difficulty coping with it given our cultural and historical background. Um, and it's actually not something that uh, we do terribly well, to be honest. Um, it's not something I do terribly well, anyway. Um, so typically, um, you know, none of us would necessarily stand up and, and flat out deny the kingship of God. None of us would be like, well, that's not something I believe in. Um, and uh, I just want to read a few verses um, found throughout Scripture um, on the subject. Um, from 1 Samuel 12, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And then from Matthew uh, from Matthew 5 when uh, they're speaking of you know don't don't swear don't take an oath um, but don't or, or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king the capital K and from Christ's entry into Jerusalem in Matthew 21 tell the daughter of Zion behold your king comes to you meek and sitting upon an ass and the colt the foal of an ass. And from Matthew 25, Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And from a testament of the apostles, Nathanael answered him and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and the King of Israel. And from 1 Timothy, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And <clears throat> there are quite a few other verses on the subject, and I'll point out here what I didn't read was anything from the Psalms or any of the other poetic books. And there's plenty of references to God's kingship there, but the reason I uh, choose to eschew those particular verses in this context is that 
this is a it, not poetic license. This is not a euphemism. This is not a metaphor. Um, this is not just poetry. This is a stated fact. God has claimed kingship. Um, but to be honest, I'm not sure that we all really know what that means or what we're supposed to do about it. Um, you know, obviously, we've uh, all dealt with it to a certain degree in our own ways. I think some of us ignore it, some of us object to it, reject it, um, some of us just dismiss it. Um, or you, you get some very particular offshoots of it, uh, such as the uh, Lordship Salvation debate that went on for many, many years and still goes. Um, but what I was wondering is, you know, what is it that makes us so uncomfortable about it? Why, why do we do that? Uh, why is it a topic that comes up, but then we all kind of look sideways and down, if you will? None of us really want to look at it head on. Um, which raised a couple of questions for me. You know, what, what exactly is a king? I'm, I, I grew up here. I've never had one. Um, what rights belong to him? What, what position does that put me in? Um, and honestly, there are so many things wrapped up uh, in this topic, whether it's us dealing with our submission to authority, our quote-unquote inalienable rights, uh, our will, our sense of self, our freedom, dignity, and personhood as human beings. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, dealing with you know what is heresy uh, and our salvation. But in order to even discuss the topic, uh, you need a starting point. And um, I'm actually going to start with Western thought and history in general. Because in seeking to understand um, how we deal with this uh, is really seeking to understand our own culture and our own history, uh, to Damon's point recently. Um, and uh, from an interview I was listening to earlier this week, which I, I think captures the, uh, the notion extremely well, is that we actually need to understand our culture better, better than it understands itself. Um, which, obviously, I think when you say something like that, for most of us, the first thing that comes to mind is Paul's sermon on Mars Hill uh, from Acts 17 and his ability to uh, understand their frustration, their unnamed, to an unnamed God, um, to be able to quote their own poets to them, etc. And of course, some people might argue that you know Paul's doing that was an anomaly of sorts, uh, as Damon pointed out to me yesterday, that uh, he didn't seem to do that terribly often, uh, so that rather than setting a precedent, it was actually an aberration. Um, but I really don't believe that's the case, and I, I don't think most of us do either. So what I would say then is that everything about our history, our philosophy uh, in the Western world, has you know, taught us or predisposed us to hate kings. We don't like them very much. Uh, more accurately, to hate all outside authority or accept that someone outside of ourselves has the right to define our sense of self, challenge our decisions, or be genuinely better than us. Western history is a history of oppression and rebellion especially in the way that we, we teach it. Um, you know, the rise and fall of empires, uh, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans. Um, and in general, if you think about our history books, you think about our classrooms, how have we been taught to view these groups of people? 
and these empires, um, a few words seem to come to mind repeatedly, um, and, and none of them are particularly positive. Um, abusive, tyrannical, oppressive. Um, and you could certainly make an argument that uh, biblical history in many ways teaches the same uh, from the book of Exodus and, and its presentation of the Pharaoh and, uh, and the underdog of, of, of the Jewish people of Moses and let my people go. Um, we have a very, very long and abiding history of rooting for the underdog in that regard. Um, and in addition to that, we have been repeatedly taught to distrust power and authority, both. Uh, and probably one of the better encapsulations of that is a quote that everyone knows, and no one knows the guy who said it, um, because we never mentioned him. His name was John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton, first baron of Acton, um, who said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power to corrupt absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And then we think about our own, our fiction, our literature, our philosophy. We realize that through our own history, we have come to equate omnipotence with oppression and omnipresence with an invasion of privacy. Uh, whether it's you know something as relatively contemporary as uh, Wells' 84, 1984, and dealing with the idea of Big Brother and that pervasive invasion of our lives. Um, or even just if you were to try and address the concept of, in a monarchy, who do I, re- who do I seek for redress of wrongs? If, if, if I'm wronged by the leadership, who do I have to go to to seek redress? And the answer in that situation is, the guy who wronged you. I have to go, if, if the king wrongs me, the only person I can go and talk to about it is the king. And yet we affirm that God is both omnipotent and omnipresent. Uh, and we would claim to accept this. We would claim to be uh, not just okay with it, but we would defend it. Uh, and we would defend that that is a good thing about our God that it is part of what makes him God. Um, but personally, I find myself choosing not to think about it all that much, to be honest. How often do you really sit there and think, oh, gee. <laughs> and when we do think about it, it tends to not go well. Uh, what, what happens if we do, when we do think about it is a lot of, is many, many people, um, and very commonly you end up with, well, if God is all-powerful and, and, and all-present, why do bad things happen? He has the power to stop it and he's there. Why doesn't he? And so in many ways, um, we become uh, Prometheus to God's Zeus. And for ourselves, we can kind of cope with that. But then we have to realize that in many ways, especially for those of us as Christians, and this, is gonna, this makes you real uncomfortable in a hurry, that also makes Satan Prometheus to God's Zeus. the one that is defying God because he is capricious and wrong and we don't really believe he knows or will do what is best for us. And in a sense, you know, we are a will 
um, and, and uh, a thought. We have a sense of self and a will, and God is a will. Um, and the question then is, does God win just because he's stronger? Who's right? Um, does God get his way just because he's, he's a better arm wrestler than we are? Um, or are we morally superior to God because we're open-minded? We are more able uh, to accept. We are less rigid and dogmatic. Is it really our right of freedom to create ourselves and supplant our creator? Which, returning to the subject of history, is essentially Greek mythology in a nutshell. You start with the Titans, uh, you rip off some naughty bits, toss them into the ocean, you get some gods, the humans rebel against that, you get some demigods, and eventually you end up with people. And so the entire flow of Greek mythology is the created rebelling against the creator and setting themselves up in that place. And this, of course, is essentially the foundation of Western theology. That entire flow of, not just theology, philosophy, that entire flow of thought um, that is essentially um, the created uh, supplants its creator and defines itself on its own terms. Uh, and you can see this, uh, basically the entire history of Western philosophy from Plato to Descartes and going on forward. Um, Plato, of course, saw the soul as completely internal, uh, the core essence of a living being being completely separate from its physical form or environment. Uh, and so uh, the sense of self was something that was entirely within. Uh, it, was, it was contained here, not out here in, in the visible space. And then you can follow that all the way through, of course, to Descartes uh, and the ever so famous cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Myself is within me. It is within my mind. It is within my thoughts. Um, and it is not an external entity. Um, and I think, you know, from a, from a church point of view, if you will, you know, we often stand up and we would... Uh, deny this as a theology, right? We'd say, uh, uh, no, uh, that, that's, not really, that's not really right. Um, you know, we claim that God is righteous, just, loving, and compassionate, um, that he has the right to rule, that he does know what is best. But honestly, at the end of the day, what does it actually mean to us? Do we actually believe it? And if, and if so, what are the consequences of you know, accepting that authority and accepting that relationship. But before we dive into that, a little bit more history. And you guys are going to get uh, probably tired of me reading things today, but I'm going to read a whole bunch of passages from uh, an interesting book. Um, because we're not just products of, of Western society. We, we're not, um, in this particular instance, uh, uh, Western Europeans. We're not uh, Western Africans. Um, what we are as Americans uh, for all that comes with that and that has its own uh, full set of um, not necessarily unique but definitely strong societal presuppositions uh, and to illustrate the example of course here's, here's just a list of words patriarchy, matriarchy, monarchy, oligarchy, polygarchy name me one of those you think of, of as positive 
The truth is that essentially, from our point of view, all archies are bad. Uh, beginning with our Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And realistically, America is not necessarily a new thought so much as it is a refinement of thought, as I've been illustrating as far as the history of, of the Western world. Um, in many ways, it's a culmination of, of Western philosophies that had a unique opportunity uh, to, found, to be founded and to express itself in this way. But there are many things that our particular environment and our particular country and culture that has sprung up from it um, have done to our way of thinking that I think present us with a very real challenge, uh, not the least of which is that everything in our society is temporary. Everything is fluid. Our leaders, we elect for very short periods of time, and then we replace them. Our laws are mutable, and all of these things are to one degree or another within our control. We have the right to vote. We have a say in what these things are. We get to object. Um, and everything is very, very temporary. We have a very short vision for things, and what we do on a general basis is within that term. If we, if we elect someone to office, their concern is the years that they're in office, not necessarily beyond. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't able to quote Paglia for Becca today from the pulpit, but I figured I could quote Eddie Izzard at least. You know, 50 years ago, surely not, no one was alive then. Um, you know, we tear our history down, etc. But that's because we, that's, that's the way our society functions, that's the way we live, is that we tear down, we rebuild, everything changes and everything changes quickly. Beyond that, we of course want to see everyone as equal. The equality of the people. It's a uh, rather ingrained notion within our country. Um, and uh, I'm actually going to just, it's an odd sort of example and um, as I said, you're going to get sick of me reading passages today, I think. But um, things that you don't think about. The impact of inheritance law on the equality of the people. It's a weird one, right? Um, you're reading several passages from uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which uh, many of you have had the uh, misfortune of hearing me rant about for many months on end. Um, but uh, in this particular instance... Uh, dealing with the equality and, and dealing with the inheritance tax, um, to which de Tocqueville says something rather, rather interesting, honestly. Um, says, I'm surprised that the ancient and modern jurists have not attributed to this law a greater influence on human affairs. For they exercise an incredible influence upon the social state of people. And... Uh, paraphrasing a little bit but uh, or jumping around but as a result of the law of inheritance the death of each owner brings about a revolution of property not only do his possessions change hands but their very nature is altered since they are parceled into shares which become smaller and smaller at each division this is the direct and as it were physical effect of the law in other words we don't have an aristocracy because our particular laws take our 
inheritance and we split it up. There's no uh, law of progenitor, if you will. It doesn't just go to the firstborn. We want equality. And as such, we divide everything up in order to ensure greater equality, but it also ensures a greater temporalness. You're never going to amass a fortune and have it last for generations because every time you go, it's going to get a little bit smaller and be a little bit shorter. Not only that, we want our rights to apply uh, very, very broadly. And um, I think this particular passage establishes, you know, sort of in many ways captures the American way of thinking. Now, I know of only two methods of establishing equality in the political world. Rights must be given to every citizen or none to anyone at all. And I think, you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort for us to look around and see the nature of of that occurring (laughs) at any given point in any given culture. Uh, But we are are a unique culture and we see our individual people as sovereign. We see ourselves as sovereign. The will of the people, the will of the nation is really the underlying mantra of our society, of our country, and of our culture. De Tocqueville captures it this way. The people reign in in the American political world as the deity does in the universe. They are the cause and aim of all things. Everything comes from them and everything is absorbed in them. In many ways, our own structure, our own culture, deifies ourselves. We set ourselves up as the final authority Uh, in all areas of life. Uh, And, you know, of course, the immediate question from there becomes, if I'm personally the final authority in all areas of life, why why obey what holds society together? Why do I pay attention to any of it? Uh, And I think this is also captured here. He obeys society not because he is inferior to those who conduct it or because he is less capable than any other governing... uh, any other of governing himself, but because he acknowledges the utility of an association with his fellow man and he knows that no such association can exist without a regulating force. He is a subject in all that concerns the duties of citizens to each other. He is free and responsible to God alone for all that concerns himself. Hence arises the maxim that everyone is the best and sole judge of his own private interest and that society has no right to control a man's actions unless they are prejudicial to the common weal or unless the common weal demands help. In other words, I have the right to do whatever I want unless it interferes with you or unless yours interferes with me. That is the societal uh, philosophical undergirding of our, of our culture that my rights are Uh, universal in so much as they do not step on anyone else's toes. And of course that carries through, uh, we carry through in our supremacy of course to um, the ability to of course indict our own leaders, to 
take someone out of office to impeach our president. Um, and we give ourselves massive, massive degrees of authority. And from our point of view, there is no one above our personal rebuke or critique. So is there anything to balance that out? Because um, I think most of us would readily confess that people within a certain degree can be really dumb. Um, even the smartest people can do things that are not, uh, not terribly, terribly intelligent. And uh, to a certain degree, that's, that's what our laws are for, is to balance out our self-deification. And uh, it's an interesting piece, interesting quote again here from de Tocqueville uh, regarding legislation, comparing uh, his view of aristocracies to his view of our, our democracy here in America, as he saw it in 1830. He says, aristocracies are infinitely more expert in the science of legislation than democracies can ever be. They are possessed of a self-control that protects them from the errors of temporary excitement and they form far-reaching designs which they know how to mature till a favorable opportunity arrives. Aristocratic government proceeds with the dexterity of art. It understands how to make the collective force of all of its laws converge at the same time to a given point. Such is not the case with democracies whose laws are almost always ineffective or inopportune. The means of a democracy are therefore more imperfect than those of an aristocracy, and the measures that it unwittingly adopts are frequently opposed to its own cause. But the object it has in view is more useful. Now, this is a bit of a peculiarity because I can stand up here and I can read these sections, and I've read that section to Becca before, and she's like, wow, that's... Um, so he's a royalist, that's cool. <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty opposed to our, to our way of thinking. To say the least, uh, we don't typically look at aristocracies as a positive thing in that, in that regard. Um, and it's interesting because I don't necessarily think that from a worldly point of view I would uh, want to live in, in, a, uh, in a monarchy as a, as a country goes. But we do live in one. Even if we have a hard time accepting it. And so I... In continuing my thought, I'm wondering to myself, what grants us all of this power? Where do we, not just from the laws and the different pieces here, but what, where do we really derive all of this from? And ultimately, it comes from our sense of self, how we define who we are. And as I mentioned with Plato and Descartes, our history for millennia has been to define ourselves as an internal and self-determined being. Uh, I uh, couldn't help thinking over and over again of the uh, song by Gavin DeGraw, as cheesy as it may be, is, I don't want to be anyone other than who I'm trying to be. Baby. Um, and, and this is our intrinsic nature, and I think possibly one of the better expressions of this, whether you like it, dislike it, agree with it or not, as far as the ultimate individuality of self as a completely 
internal affair that is unique to you is that uh, if you go to Facebook, you may choose from over 70 different options for gender. So ultimately, the limits of our power really end at the edge of our own personal will and its interference with others. And yet we have to come to terms with the fact that as Christians we are subject to a king, to someone that is the holy other, is an unelected deity in which we have no say, no power, and no decision. And as Timothy said, our role is to give him honor and glory. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm not going to really answer a lot of questions this morning. I'm not going to tell anyone how, how to think in any particular regard and that um, my goal is really to help us all to think through the culture in which we live, the education which we've had, and our way of thinking and how does it truly relate to our being subjects of the kingdom of God. Can we really learn to believe that a king or a monarchy can be a good thing? Can we accept uh, total outside authority as good? Um, you know, I, th I think in that regard, we have a couple of areas where we're able to do that. You know, for most of us, not all, but for most of us, we think, you know, there's a reason that uh, we have authority over our pets. Um, although I, I think then, of course, the next immediate uh, objection is we're not pets. Um, and so we maybe turn and say, okay, well, what about, what about kids? What about children? Uh, but even um, our philosophy continues through there as well uh, as our modern society continues to really uh, amplify and accept or even not accept in some areas the parent's ability to err, the doubt that we know what's best. And then we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that God does? Do we really believe that God knows what is best for us. So as I said, not answering questions so much as asking them, what I wanted to say is, this is how we think. Is it right? And if it's not right, what is? Because ultimately, accepting God's rule as king is not really an option. The kingdom of God is what we profess as eternal truth. And at the end of the day, it is a kingdom. From Revelation 15, Great and marvelous are thy wor works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with being a vassal. <laughs> um, but it's something that I think 
uh, is worth our time, thought, and consideration. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we profess this with our lips to be true. But in our hearts, it is terribly difficult for us to accept our culture, our history, our personal lives. So much uh, sets us at odds at the notion of accepting that level of authority that we have no say in, that we have no control over, and that we only the only choice we have is to trust. And I think many, many times our trust falters would be a gentle way of saying it. Lord, we thank you for your patience. We ask that you would continue to be gracious to us as we wrestle with these ideas, as we wrestle with our relationship to you. How do we approach you as our king, as our leader, as our father, as our friend? And how do we understand our role and how do we understand yours? Lord, thank you so much for your many, many blessings to us, for the, for the multitude of things you have given us and provided, and for the opportunity to dwell upon your nature and to think upon you. Lord, thank you for the chance to gather here together, both to honor your name and to consider our place. We thank you for all of these things. We thank you for the time we have together this morning. We ask and pray that you would go with us in the week to come and that you would guide us as we go forward. In Christ's name, amen.